I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are here, and, I, and, and it's, been an, it's been a challenge um, every week to do what we're doing, but we've been able to do it, and um, a lot of that is because you know, all, all the work that Cheryl puts in to, to make all this happen, coordinate it all, make us all look good. And uh, if you think about how hard a job it is to make me look good, then you know that Cheryl's a miracle worker. So we thank you for that. We also know, um, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, we're going to be getting back to our regular quota of worship music. But right now, it's, it's a lot for us to do what we're doing. And we just are thankful um, that we were able to do this together. We are wrapping up our sermon series on the, on the book, of, book of Ruth, and, and this is the last week. Next week, we're going to go into James, and a lot of the people who've been coming to our How to Study the Bible, uh, they're going to have a particular interest, because that's the book we've been using, and, and they've all chosen verses that, you know, that they're trying to apply the Bible study method to, and uh, that, that I've been teaching them. And also, they're going to be able to check and say, like, oh, pastor's totally wrong there. He's taking stuff totally out of context. Um, you know, what's wrong with that guy? And, um, but it's, it's, it's good. I think it's an important book for us to look at um, at this time uh, because we've been talking about being a healthy church. We've been talking about, you know, the importance of being a community of disciples. And then James just doesn't give us anywhere to hide. You know, we, 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 we want to be disciples, but we want to be kind of selective disciples. And James says, no, if you're truly a disciple of the word, if you're truly a follower of Christ, then there will be things that happen as a result. And he's pretty specific about it. And so it's, it's good. It's good because these things are, are good things. They're helpful things. They're powerful things. But it's a reflection of, of, our, of our life that has been changed. But before we go there, I'm, I always want to go to the next series before I finish th this one. But this one has been really good. And, and today's message is, is so important. Uh, so before we go there, we, we're finishing up in, in Ruth. And, um, you know, there's this, this pouring out of grace that we've already seen throughout this, this story and then today's, you know, title is Grace Upon Grace. Um, I, I wanted to, bef before we go to that, I, I wanted to talk about this other subject that's often really important to, especially people growing up in Hawaii. And this, the question is, you know, what kind of slippers, you know, do you wear? Um, so when I was younger, when we first moved to, to Hawaii, um, you know, we didn't do this. You know, we lived you know, in Oklahoma, West Virginia, before we moved over here in elementary school. And, you know, we didn't know. And so, uh, you know, we came and we just did what everybody else did. Um, you know, the, we had the plain black slipper, the thin one like that one. And, and, and it didn't even have the little logo on it. It was just pure black. It cost like a dollar or something, you know, at Long's or wherever, and you could get them. Um, and then the, the other one on the other side, was there was a local name for those, right? You guys remember what it was called? What kind of slippers those were? Kamaboko, right? Kamaboko slippers. You guys remember that? So if you grew up here, then, then you remember. And they were a little bit thicker, 
they were for like the high class people, like the poor people, we were the black ones. And then, you know, when you, when you kind of moved up in the world, uh, literally, you, um, you got the thicker ones, the Kamaboko ones, right? There were other kinds around, but, but we never thought that we needed anything else. You know, this did the job. In fact, if they broke, sometimes you figured a way instead of just spending another dollar getting new ones, you know, to kind of tape them together or whatever to keep using them. And, and it was fine. If anybody had told me back then that, that I needed something else, I'd have been like, you're crazy. I don't need anything else. I, I'm fine. These, these, these work. They, you know, they're on my feet. I walk around. You know, they're, they're fine. But I, when I got a little bit older, and I was actually probably in my early 30s, that um, I was having problems. I was having like back problems and you know, my feet were always sore and all, all this stuff. And so I went to the, to the doctor, podiatrist, and, and the doctor said, what do you wear all day? And even at that age, whenever I could, you know, this is, this is what I wore. You know, I wore these kind of um, slippers. And, and it was the first time that, that I kind of listened when the guy, because, you know, he was a specialist, when he said, you got to stop wearing those things. Those things are ruining your back and they're ruining your, your feet. And up until then, it's like, I, if you would have tried to give me those, I'd have been like, I, I, I don't need any fancy, any fancy sandals, any fancy slippers. And so I... Um, you know, I decided, okay, I'll listen to him. And, and I went. And as a matter of fact, I have another picture of the ones that I, I wear now. You know, these are the ones I wear now. These are actually even more. They, they kind of look like that black slipper, but they're, they're not. They're like specially designed with this special foam. And, and again, if you'd have told me before I believed that this could actually help me because I use it, I would have thought, you're crazy. It's a waste of money. You know, I could buy 25 thin black slippers, you know, for the price of this one, you know, sandal or whatever. And, and, and I think that's what happens to us a lot of times. We, we learn to get by. We learn to deal with whatever we have and we think we know. And sometimes it's because we might have a lot of good stuff. We might have the, the Kamaboko slipper that we think is the best. Or maybe it's because we're just getting by with just that that, you know, that flat, basic, you know, black slipper. But we, we get into a thing where we think we know what we need. We think we know what, what, what's really important. And we think we, we, we begin to think like we don't need anything else. And so we get to the point that when God wants to pour grace out on us, we're like, no, I don't want that. I don't, I don't need your grace, God. I, I've learned to get by. I've, I've learned to, to cope. I've learned to, to, to just kind of deal with, with life. I, I don't need your grace. And I especially don't need that grace that I know I'm receiving grace. And it makes me grateful because of that grace where now I have to show that grace to others. I really don't want that grace. I don't mind the grace where you just maybe give me stuff and leave me alone. But I don't want the grace that changes me. I don't want the grace that, that 
that makes my life different because just like I didn't believe that those sandals could make my life better, they just cost more money. Because of that, we think like, I'm fine, God. I'm fine. Yeah, you say it's better, but I don't really believe it and the price is too high. And again, when, I mean, I finally gave in and started wearing the better sandals, I realized, no, this is better. <laughs> this is way better. It's not even, not even the, the same world that I was in before. And so we often don't want this. We don't want this grace. You know, we want, as in the world, you know, what do we think we want? We want to have some kind of control. We want to have, we want power. Most of us don't think we want power or we want, we have to control the whole world, but we want enough power to at least control a part of it. And grace, grace doesn't give us power that way. It gives us a different kind of power. But it doesn't give us the power that the world wants. We want control. You know, we want a certain amount of, of stuff, of things, material possessions. But grace, eh, okay, grace is nice. But grace is a luxury. And a lot of people decide grace is a luxury they can't afford. You know, one of the things I did this week, partly because of, you know, seeing all of these protests that became riots and all this other stuff, you know, and then seeing people quote, and especially they like to quote Malcolm X. Well, I decided to do what I, what I always tell people to do, which is don't just quote people and then, you know, think you know what they mean by quoting them, but, but go and actually understand it in context. And one of the justifications that people have said about, you know, why the rioting is okay is, is because they quote Malcolm X where, where he's kind of, in a way, kind of poking fun at Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and then advocating for his own position. But he said something to the effect that's kind of catchy. It's like there's a time to stop singing and a time to start swinging. And people are using that to say that he's, he was advocating for, for violence. And so I went back and I, and I actually read his, the speech where he said that in. And he wasn't advocating for this kind of uncontrolled rioting. But he was advocating for taking action. He was advocating that, that there needed to be a specific kind of action. And it was no longer just trust the system. That the system will work. And so it, it still had that spirit but again, the reason I read it was because I read the speech was because of people quoting him and again, misquoting him and taking him out of his own context. But if this, the speech is still about, this, this isn't about, it's not about grace. There's no, it's, no, it's not a question of grace. And, and one thing that he, that he was correct about was that he was, he was looking at uh, human nature. And, and he was saying, you know, when you have a, a revolution, you don't want to hear, love your enemies. 
not, when, not in a revolution. Now he goes on to say that American, Americans have this opportunity because of our, our country that we have an opportunity to have, you know, bloodless revolutions. So he's, he wasn't in any way advocating violence, but he was speaking out against this idea of loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. Because to get what he believed he needed and what you know, the people he was advocating for needed, it, it couldn't go that path. It couldn't go that way. Well, all he was doing was saying what most of us believe. Most of us are cool with loving our enemies as long as our enemies aren't attacking us. As long as they're far away on another continent. As long as they're quiet. Or as if they are attacking us, they're not attacking us in a way that we feel threatened. It's kind of weird how we're okay with our enemies doing things secretly that we don't know. We're okay with that. Just don't tell me. But it's, it's easy to, to speak about loving your enemies when your enemies aren't right there in your face. And so, for me, it's like, uh, I know it's true about me. I'm pretty sure it's true about you. And the only reason that I could ever love my enemy is not because I have it within me to love my enemy. It's because God's word and his spirit overwhelms me and helps me to love my enemy. It's not what the world wants. And yet it is what God knows that we need and it is what God gives us. He pours out grace upon grace. Well, where are we in this story? Well, as we saw last week, Ruth had actually done something that would have been considered pretty scandalous. She had proposed to Boaz. She had said in their times, hey, Boaz, let's get married. And again, it was just so countercultural in so many different ways. And Boaz says, first of all, he, he her request, he, he's not offended by it. In fact, he sees her request as grace. Like, you know, instead of going after those young men, you came to me. He sees it as grace. And then he says, you know what? I, I, I would love to do it. I will do it if... And then Boaz shows his character. He doesn't just go after the thing that he wants. He's not just driven by his emotions. He obviously loves Ruth, and Ruth obviously loves him. But they're not just driven by emotions. He says, no, I need to, I need to follow the law. There's someone else who's a closer relative than me, and we need to settle some business before we can get married. And so we pick up chapter 4 where, where the author writes, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. 
Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. What's happening here is if you go back and compare the, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, what's happening here is you know a couple of centuries have passed and there seems to be this blending of two different laws. There's two things, and they've kind of blended together over time. And it's not like just a crazy blend, you know? It's not just things that don't go together. They're, they actually go together. And, and you can see the connection. And it's, one of it is, is this thing about land, and the land staying within the, the tribe. So that's one part of it. And the other part is this idea of, of continuing someone's line, someone's family line. And both of those things are, are important for different reasons, but you can see the relationship. And this is kind of a blend of those two things. If you go back and read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, you'll, you'll see some variations on this. In fact, Naomi had no right to sell the land. There was no selling of land. In fact, it's very likely that she didn't own the land. It's very likely that Elimelech, that when they were kind of going through that time of famine, Elimelech was doing what all of us would do, which is, you know, how do I get my family to survive? And he probably went through all these different things, and he finally probably sold the land. So it's not really hers to sell. In fact, the, the way that the law was written, it wouldn't have been a sell anyways. It would have been just a transfer of property. And again, we, you go, well, why does the Bible say buy and sell and all these other things? Um, it could be that over time, the, the customs had changed, but it could also be, which is probably more likely, that interpreters, translators translated the word wrong. That That, that word doesn't necessarily have to mean buy and sell, but you can certainly see why you know, translators would think that. It kind of makes sense. But if you go back and you look at the Mosaic Law, it, it doesn't really follow. So we know that there's some kind of, of, of blending here. And so Boaz goes and, and, he, and he sits down at the gate. Now, the gate wasn't just like a gate. There would have been what we might call like a gatehouse. There's a gate, and then 
there's, there would be spaces near the gate and you can guess what they were for. If someone's attacking the city, there would be you know, people, you know, soldiers in those gates trying to protect the gate. They're in these little gate rooms. But in times of peace, those were places where, where people met. Now people think like the gate at Bethlehem might not have been big enough for them to meet, so maybe they are kind of meeting outside. But it became, and an, with a bigger gate, you know, you kind of had indoors and there's, there were benches people would sit down on. But it became a place, a civic center. It became a place where, where you, you would take care of business. And so when, when Boaz comes in and sits down, it, it's saying he's there to do business. And then we find this coincidence. But remember, this is the Bible and the way the Bible is written. It's not a coincidence. Boaz happens to sit down when this other relative walks by. And the way it's written is like, you know, this is God. God's ordaining this. He's bringing them together. And so Boaz says, I want to do business with you. And then he calls these um, ten elders over as witnesses. And so they, 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 they do this transaction and he presents to him the first part of it, which is the land. And of course, like any good landowner, hey, more land, okay, that's cool, that'd be great. And so he, he wants the land. But then Boaz says this thing that actually wasn't the law but it had become kind of like the right thing to do. Because if you took someone's land and you didn't want to perpetuate their line, you would have been looked at as being like pretty selfish. Like what's wrong with you? And if you read the, the Old Testament law, it really wasn't extended to extended family. It was. It was a brother. In fact, it was a brother who lived on the same land as the brother who died. So this is obviously an expansion, but it's more of an expansion of people just, you know, looking at you. And there was a, a problem with, um, there was certainly a problem if you were the brother living on the land. If you're a brother living on the land and didn't want to perpetuate, you know, your brother's line, it was pretty serious. In fact, it wasn't you give your sandal. It was the widow takes your sandal and spits on you. Okay? So it was definitely frowned upon. But by this time, it was probably just one of these things like they, they had just kind of put these two together. And so the relative would have been perfectly within his legal rights to say like, I'll take the land, but but, but not the widow. But there would have been, you know, again, incredible pressure from his community and certainly would have made him look very bad. But it's not so much about the relative. In fact, the way the relative's name, um, the way he's named in the book of Ruth, it just says, um, I read one definition that said he, it could have just been like, Oh, Mr. So-and-so. Like, so is there's just this other guy. And again, he's not presented as a bad guy. He's just 
Yeah, he actually does the right thing. He could have taken the land and, and left Ruth, but he doesn't. So he's not presented as a good guy or a bad guy. He's just a guy, and then he moves on. This story is instead about Boaz. And what we see with Boaz is, first of all, Boaz is, is following, he's going to follow the law, even if it doesn't benefit him personally. But the second thing we see him do is that he doesn't just fulfill the letter of the law. Boaz is all about also fulfilling the spirit of the law. He's going to do them both. Because he's been doing this from the beginning, from the gleaning moving forward. Because this gleaning was actually part of the law. That, that it was a way to take care of the orphans and the widows and and you know, sojourners, aliens from other places that were, that were there in your land and, and the poor. You, you left stuff. You didn't take everything. It was a way to, to help them. And yeah, they still had to work. They still had to come out to your field. They still had to, to gather and do all of that. But, you know, you were taking care of them. And we, we've seen from Boaz that, that he goes just above and beyond, especially with Ruth and Naomi. It's, it's the recognition that even in the law at that time, there was grace. There was grace for those who, whether it was their fault or not, didn't have what they, what they needed. And so he does this. He's not Mr. So-and-so that we forget. Boaz doesn't just hold to the letter of the law. He holds to the spirit of the law. And what we see is that is that God is, is using Boaz to fulfill his plan. And it's a grace upon Boaz. It's grace from Boaz, but it's a grace upon Boaz that, that God would use him. And that's one of the things that's kind of, we get kind of backwards in our heads. Um, I don't know how you were, but but like I had four brothers and a sister and um, I was always known as the responsible brother, which meant that if you're the responsible brother, guess who gets called to do all the work from mom and dad, right? Because if they tell irresponsible brother, they're gonna, it's, it's a pain because you gotta, you know, tell them three or four times and, and then get upset at them and then it probably never gets done. So, you know, just tell the responsible one to do it. And, and we can get in this, this mindset of, of thinking like, you know, why, you know, why do I have to do it? Why do I have to do it? Why am I given the jobs? And we transfer that to God. God, why, why can't you just let me be like the, the kind of the regular run-of-the-mill Christian that just kind of, you know, loves you and comes to church and, you know, gives my offering and all that, but, but nothing else. And we don't necessarily see it as a grace when God says, I want to use you. I am going to use you. And we can sometimes turn that into a burden. And we think of it like, oh, I got, you know, I got I to I gotta go do this. I got to go, you know, teach my class. Or I got to, you know, I got to go to the, you know, another meeting at the church. Or, you know, I got this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping the, you know, the worship team or whatever else. And it becomes a burden. 
But we need to understand if God's not using you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and God's not using you, there's only like two or three reasons. One is you're not ready yet and you're getting ready and you're going to get there. Two is he's trying to use you. He's trying to say this is what you need to do to be part of you know, the community of faith, to don't steal from the church because you are now participating fully. This is what you need to do, and you're ignoring it. Or third, he's treating you like the broken pot. It's like, all right, you, 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 don't, you, you don't want to be used. You're ready to be used. You're gifted to be used. You don't want to be used. Here, you can stay in the house but we're going to put you up on the shelf. If we're not being used, it's not a sign of God's grace. In fact, it's probably a sign of his disappointment. God wants to use us. He calls us as the church that we would serve one another, that we would help one another. He wants to use us. But he wants to use us in a, with, when our response is, thank you. Thank you. That you would use me. Well, we continue on with the story. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have brought to be my I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became, became his wife. And he went into her, and the two gave, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So the story comes full circle. God restores Naomi. She restores, he restores Elimelech's line. And he does it through Boaz and Ruth. They're restored. The place among the people is restored. And so this story kind of comes full circle. In, in, it, it has this resolution. This has been the biggest loss that Naomi has experienced. That she has failed at her like fundamental purpose and the line is gone. But now the line is restored. Boaz understood this. Ruth understands this. Naomi understands this. We sometimes miss it. Again, we get fixated on the love story of, of, of Boaz and Ruth and, and we forget, no, this is a story of God's grace upon Naomi. The one who wanted to be called bitter. The one who accepted her, her fate. Who said, this is how it is, how it's going to be. Okay, I'm still, I still have faith. I will still believe. But I 
know life is going to be hard. She's been restored. And again, we, we see this parallel in, in what Jesus Christ does for us. That Jesus Christ, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, God's plan is not simply to save us, but it is to restore us, to place us among his people, that we would find our place again, our name among his people. And again, it gets back to this idea like, God, we like your grace when it gives us stuff that we want, but this other stuff we're not so sure. Because you know what? It's a lot harder once you're restored with God's people. It's a lot harder to, to continue to kind of to, to live your faith. You know, if you could just be on your own, you could just, you know, keep... It's on your own interpretation. You can make it mean whatever you want to mean, and you're fine. It can be you, God, the Bible. You're good. You're cool. But this whole being part of God's people, it's not easy. It's frustrating at times. It's discouraging. But it's, it's what God's called us to be. He's called us to, to come together and, and be together and, and work together that we would work through our problems, that we, would, that we would have faith in God and we would continue to honor his word and do things his way no matter the challenges that we face. And that there's incredible victory that comes when we can do that. It's not grace if God you know, takes us and makes us perfect and then puts us together. That's not grace. Well, you know, you go, that'd be nice. Yeah, I guess it would be nice. But it's really not grace. Grace is that God would take us wherever we are, that he would restore us, and he would allow us the joy, the strength, the steadfastness, the faith, the hope, the peace that comes as we, the people of God, live together, sharpen one another, grow together, build one another up. That's grace. And so he does this. Christ restores us. He doesn't just redeem us. He doesn't just buy us back from being slaves to sin. No. He does even more than that. That would have been great, just to be freed from being slaves to sin. That would be great. But it is grace upon grace. It is abundant grace that he pours out on us. And then it says this, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. I say this is grace upon grace. Not only has, has God protected Naomi and Ruth, now they have a kinsman redeemer. Now they have a child. But even more so, this child has now become part of the royal line. But there's something else here I want you to see. I want you to see that not only does God bless Naomi, he uses the people to remind Naomi of something that she was missing in her bitterness. And, and, and they use this weird kind of phrasing for us, which is Ruth, who is more valuable to you than seven sons. To have like a perfect family in that time, you had seven sons. You know, you were blessed with sons and you're blessed with seven of them. And, and these women are saying, Naomi, the whole time you were more than blessed and you missed it because you were so bitter. God gave you Ruth, this incredible human being. This, poor, this person who's just pouring out God's loving kindness to you all the time and you missed it. You missed it. You were not just given the full family that very few people got seven sons. You were given more than that in one person. In one person, you received more love than you would have received had you had seven sons. You see it? Do you get it? And I love that. That God's grace is that he, he reminds us, he teaches us of the things that we missed when we were stuck in our misery. When we thought like, oh, you know, God's so far away or, you know, he's abandoned me or, or you know, life's just so blah. And he reminds of us, us of all those things that we missed, all those people we missed that just poured into our lives. You know, when we hear from the graduates later on, we did a little recording that, that of, of them, you know, saying some thank yous and all. And, and, it, and one of the things I, when I used to teach and I used to go to high school graduations, I would hear these, these, these students, you know, finally have a moment to say thank you. And, and it was good and bad. Because some of them, only at that moment, only at that moment of graduation, did they realize how blessed they had been all those years. When they thought their parents were just terrible, when they thought their home life was the worst home life possible, when they couldn't understand why their mean old teachers hated them, and they suddenly got it. They hadn't been deprived, they had been blessed. And I wonder how many of us, we do the same thing. We, we, we look at 
at our elderly parents or, or we look at other people in the church or, or we look at people who are our bosses, our leadership, and, and we think of them as burdens. And we miss the fact that some of them, not all of them, but some of them, they're like Ruth. And they're blessing us and they're sustaining us and we don't know it. I love that. I love this part of the story. I love that, you know, 3,000 years ago, people still had this idea of asking God, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me today? And then being upset if, if they couldn't name anything. It's just awesome to see that in God's word we have this, this recording, this record of, of Ruth. And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Our church is not perfect. Far from it. But I'll tell you this. Our church is full of Ruths. And some of them are male, okay? They're not all female. Our church is full of people who are worth more than seven sons. Do you know it? Do you see them or do you just see the problems? Do you just see what we don't have or do you see how God has blessed us? Oh, if you want to see, if, if you want to see negative things about anything, just ask me. I have a spiritual gift of pointing out negative things. You, you show me the most perfect thing, I'll tell you something's wrong with it. Okay? No problem. But do we see the roofs that are all around us? And this ends with the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Not only are they all restored, not only is this line restored, becomes part of the line of King David. And we know the line of King David then leads to the line of Jesus. God remembers the name of the faithful and it is his grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. They didn't know this. They didn't know what God was going to do. They didn't know that their faithfulness was going to lead to this line that would go through David and eventually to Jesus. They didn't know that. They were just faithful. And that's one of the lessons that we need to learn. We see this story and everything turns out. And so we think the takeaway is, if I'm faithful, everything will work out. That is not the takeaway. If that's the takeaway you have from this story, I've failed. The takeaway is be faithful regardless of how it turns out. There is no guarantee that there's a Boaz somewhere out there other than the Boaz we already have in Jesus Christ. There's no guarantee that everything in the worldly sense is going to work out for you. There's no guarantee of that. You're faithful. You want to have the faithfulness of Naomi and Ruth when they didn't think anything was ever going to be better. That life was going to go from miserable to more miserable. You want that faith. 
You want that love. Not the one thinking, I will do it because God will work it all out and it will all be happy tomorrow. No. There's no promise of that. The call is to be faithful regardless of what happens in this life. And so we know that when that happens, we know this, when we're restored to the people of God, when God remembers our name, he remembers it forever. We're not just saved from the power of sin. It's grace upon grace. We're given life and we're given it abundantly. We, we, we realize the reason we were created and we are, we are equipped and empowered to fulfill that purpose. And we know the presence of God today and we know that we will know that presence forever. And so the call is for us to be faithful, for us to know truth, us to live truth, regardless of the situation. And God remembers us, grace upon grace.